0: We're going to look, actually, at the passage that runs from Matthew chapter 21 to chapter 24, verse 2. I think we need, in in trying to deal with this particular part of Matthew's Gospel, we need to take the big picture to get a sense of what's going on here. Um, We've been trying to do that over the last few weeks and again today, so I'm not going to read just one particular part of it, but if you have it open, we'll be able to work our way through this passage from Matthew 21, uh, to Matthew 24, verse 2. Uh, I think it's about to fall. You might want to rescue it. <laughs> just heard. That's the bass guitar, in case you're wondering. Well, we've just had the Conservative Party leadership election over the autumn. And now, at the start of the year, we have the Liberal Democrats leadership election. Conservative one broke new ground in politics. It was essentially a rather rather civilised campaign and conducted open to the scrutiny of the media as well as the party itself. And I think the opinion polls would suggest that it has done them a lot of good. The Lib Dems, on the other hand, seem to have managed to do themselves a lot of harm. And now there are going to be three candidates from that party under scrutiny in the weeks that lie ahead, though just how publicly will be a matter of interest. already they find themselves in more difficulty as, rather tragically, it's become clear that Mark Oton, one of the four candidates, has stood down because of revelations about his sexual life and behaviour. And no doubt, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to have a new Labour leadership election. And I suspect that the fur will really fly in that one. It could be the most explosive of all three. These elections, and that they should all be happening in quick succession, are interesting. And they raise questions about leaders' personal values. How leaders perform under pressure. About the experience they have and the right to be heard. And about their authority in particular. And this morning, as we look at this passage from Matthew 21 to Matthew 24, we discover that it was no different in Jesus' day. Last week we had an overview of the last week of Jesus' life, and then in particular a look at his entry into Jerusalem and his entry into the temple and clearing of the temple. Very deliberate and planned events which were important in religious and political terms within the life of Israel. They weren't things that just happened on the spur of the moment. And we noticed how they were tied in not just with Old Testament passages of Scripture, but many Old Testament uh, references and imagery of the Old Testament. And today we want to move on a bit through the passage and deal with some of the consequences of those deliberate actions. So I'm asking you not to concentrate so much on the flow of the individual teaching sections that you will read here, but on the flow of events as Matthew describes them in this particular passage. So let's look at the first incident, Matthew 21, verse 23. This is day three of the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? What Jesus has been doing in the previous two days, entering into the temple, turning tables upside down, presenting huge challenges to people about the religious life of the nation, entering Jerusalem the day before that, on a donkey, symbolic of the Messiah, the Anointed One, God's chosen King, coming into his city, what Jesus has been doing has been raising the stakes. And they're the kind of things that could not be ignored by the authorities, and Jesus knew that. You can just begin to imagine the conversations that have been taking place late into the night. The scenario playing, the planning of how to handle Jesus if or when he comes back into the temple. And Jesus has been teaching in some part of the temple precincts. So the chief priests and the elders of the people come to him and they challenge his authority to do these things. They challenge his authority to set himself up as a leader of the people. The temple was their jurisdiction, so it was reasonable that they should challenge Jesus. But they're nervous about throwing him out physically of the temple because verse 26 makes it clear that they're concerned about the people. They're anxious about the response that the people will have to what they do. But the question that Jesus asks of them is fascinating. They come and they say, who gives you this authority? And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you if you answer my question. Verse 25, John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Tells us something about the influence of John the Baptist. That in Jerusalem he was so well known. That this issue was still so live in the people's consciousness. John's preaching a baptism for repentance. And in the encounter that follows there's a standoff. Because there's no resolution to Jesus' question. Because if they say from heaven. Uh, they discussed it among themselves and said. If we say from heaven he will ask them why did you believe him. But if we say from men we're afraid of the people. For they all hold that John was a prophet. And they had a fear of the people around them here. So there's no resolution. So Matthew is helping us see a confrontation taking place between Jesus. Who for day three has come back into the temple precincts. Is teaching the people. And the authorities now have to come and take on this pseudo leader of God's people. As far as they are concerned. So it's not just a standoff that you have here. We then have Jesus telling true parables. Uh, The first one is the parable of the two sons, which has a very clear application. Verse 31, which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered, and Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the chief priests and the elders who are still standing there as part of the crowd. For John came to show you the way of righteousness. They wouldn't answer the question about John, but Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is not just a standoff. This is turning into a confrontation. And look what happens in the next parable, the parable of the tenants, which has an even clearer application when you get to the end in verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. So it's not surprising that the outcome is in verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Incident number one. I don't know what time of the day it took place I don't know the exact setting within the temple precincts, but this is day three of the last week of Jesus' life. He's in the temple, he's teaching. The chief priests and the elders have been there. There has been a standoff, which has turned into a confrontation in which Jesus makes it very clear what he thinks about where they stand. Second incident. If you go down to verse 15 of um, chapter 22, because Jesus then starts to teach more generally to the people around him after the chief priests and the elders have left. And in verse 15, it appears that something has been going on in the background. And the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So this is the second incident. I don't know whether it was 15 minutes later or an hour later, but it's the same day. It's the same setting. It's in exactly the same place. And this is very interesting, this second incident. Because the Pharisees, having watched the chief priests and the elders come back with their tail between their legs, now pick up the baton. The chief priests and the elders don't seem to have done Jesus any harm. Quite the opposite. And The Pharisees maybe have decided that as they have chased him around Galilee for years, they're in a better position to try and sort him out. It's very interesting in verse 16 that they choose to send their disciples and the Herodians because the politics of what is going on here is fascinating and it was probably too much for them to go themselves. To understand this, it's a bit like politics here in Northern Ireland. A bit, only a wee bit. It's a bit like a DUP-UUP joint delegation going to number 10. When they find something that they agree on and is for the greater good of the unionist community, there are these shows of unity when they go to make this joint representation. Sometimes it happens with the SDLP and Sinn Féin, not so much these days. But the intention is to show the strength of the support base Or the authority that they carry when they make their point and they challenge Tony Blair. But as I say, it's only a bit like one of those delegations. Because the the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians had really very, very little in common. This was one unholy alliance. This is actually a bit more like, if you can imagine it, a joint DUP-Shen Fein delegation going to number 10. Because you see, the Pharisees were ardent Jewish nationalists. They hated Roman rule. And they wanted the Romans out the sooner the better. The Herodians on the other hand supported the Herods. Pretty obvious from the title. And the Herods lived very comfortably under Roman rule and Roman authority because they were given a great deal of devolved authority. And they were able to raise lots of taxes. And that's why you see Jesus being passed around at the time of his, his trial between them. There's, a, there's a, a living together, an accommodation that has been found. So politically... And religiously, these two groups of people are poles apart. They have a common enemy. And the common enemy is Jesus. And that's why you have this joint delegation. In fact, this to get a sense of what this is really like, you've got to stretch imagination to absolute incredulity. This is like Ian Paisley and Gerry Adams leading a delegation... To talk to to Tony Blair when he has decided to come along and visit the 12th of July procession at Derry. Tony Blair will go to Baghdad any day of the week. But there isn't any way he's going to turn up at the field on the 12th. And you've got to get a sense of what's going on here. The dynamic of what is happening here we can skip over too easily in this passage. So they come and they ask their question. And it's a very clever question. They say to Jesus in verse 17, We know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, that you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, if Jesus says it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians will quietly melt off into the crowd, no doubt, and will leave it to the disciples of the Pharisees to stir up the crowd against this Roman sympathizer. I'm quite sure this was the plan. If Jesus says it's wrong to pay taxes to Caesar, then the disciples of the Pharisees will quietly melt off into the crowd and leave it to the Herodians to start a row about how this man's causing trouble and how we need to get him off to Herod, we need to get him sorted out. It's a very clever question. And they think that we can't lose with this question. The genius of Jesus' answer Is that it is both fearless and wise. First of all, Jesus rebukes their hypocrisy. They start with this whole thing about, We know you are a man of integrity, Jesus. We know you're not swayed by people. And here they are, sworn enemies, standing together, a public show of love and affection. Nonsense. So Jesus says, You hypocrites. And his response to them is absolutely fearless. He is prepared to antagonize both groups because he is not prepared to put up with the hypocrisy that is going on in front of him. And then his answer is just pure genius. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. After all, the coin has Caesar's head on it. And there's not really very much they can do about it. Which takes us to the third incident. And notice the way in which Matthew says in verse 23 of chapter 22, that same day. This is the third attempt on Jesus. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. And you may know the rest of the story, how they, they create this hypothetical situation that, in fact, the woman ends up marrying seven brothers. So in this resurrection, which they don't believe in, Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. In this resurrection, uh, whose wife will she be? We've had the chief priests and the elders. We've had the Pharisees sending their disciples along with the Herodians. And now the Sadducees have a go. So we've already got four groups of people. The chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians. Having a conclave somewhere quietly behind closed doors in the temple precincts. And we have the Sadducees being wheeled out to have a go at Jesus in verse 23. Their hypothetical question is met with the response of Jesus in verse 29. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. It's hard to imagine what Jesus could have said that could possibly have been more offensive. To Sadducees. Sadducees were not in error. Sadducees did not live with self doubt about the possibility that they might be wrong on something. That was not their way. It was not their nature. It was not their disposition as a sect within Judaism. And Jesus just says, You are in error because you neither understand the scriptures nor God Himself. The fourth incident comes in verse 33 and 34. When Jesus has responded to the Sadducees, the crowds heard this and they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. I would just love I would just love to know the politics of what is going on in the background here. This is all happening in one day, one afternoon in the temple precincts in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the shuffling that's going on between these various parties within Judaism as they try to negotiate what's the next best approach? Who should go next? Who's going to go into the firing line? And it has to be the Pharisees. There is no way they can live behind the shadow of their failed disciples. There's honor at stake for them, never mind the whole business of Jesus and what we're going to do with Jesus. So here we have the fourth incident. The Sadducees have left. Out come the Pharisees and note that they are led, as it says in verse 35, by an expert in the law. This is like wheeling out your best QC to present your case. You do that when there's absolutely nobody left because they're so expensive. And it's a bit like whipping out one of them. You know, an expert in the law has been brought in. We really don't have very much better than this. And the first question, to my mind, must only have been intended as a warm-up question because it's not a difficult question. And I don't think it was intended to be a difficult question. And I think it's probably a bit like Prime Minister's Question Times. You know, the way in which... There's a question asked, but it's not the question. I don't know if you've ever watched Prime Minister's question times, but this is what they do. The Speaker calls somebody to ask a question, they ask a question. Maybe they only quote the order number in the paper, which is a question about something or other. But in fact, it's nothing to do with anything, because although the Prime Minister has the response written in his big book, it's so that the person can ask the supplementary question. And that could be about anything in the world, anything that's difficult. And I think that's what's going on here. So the first question is not a difficult question. But it's part of a process. And everybody knows the rules of the game. And everybody knows what is going on here. And Jesus responds to the question. In perfectly acceptable and expected terms. And then Jesus asks a question. While the Pharisees are gathered together. And deciding where they go from here. The son of David Sorry, while the Pharisees were gathered together, verse 41, Jesus said to them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And this is not a difficult question. There's no great trick in this question. The answer is simple and obvious. The son of David. But it's Jesus who has a supplementary question first. And his supplementary question is, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And it's Jesus' supplementary question that causes the problem. The query that Jesus raises about the Christ being both the son of David and Lord whom David refers to as Lord, is fascinating. At one level, it's just a very clever question. And I'm sure lots of the people who were standing around and listening to Jesus teaching were thinking that. Oh, that's a good question. I never thought of that before. And you can see the buzz beginning to start amongst lots of people who are there. Very under- I'd never noticed that before. I wonder what the answer to that is. But that's not what the Pharisees hear. And it's not what they were intended to hear. The Pharisees hear a different challenge. And they know exactly what Jesus is getting at. Do you remember what happened the day before? Do you remember what happened when Jesus was in the temple? Do you remember what happened when he was clearing the temple? And after he had cleared the temple... The children were shouting, verse 15 of chapter 21, Hosanna to the Son of David. And then the leaders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law come to Jesus and they say in verse 16, do you hear what these children are saying? This is not appropriate. We know that this ascription, Hosanna to the Son of David, is an ascription to God's anointed Messiah. And they are expecting... That Jesus will be embarrassed by this and will start to silence the children. And point out to the children that this is not appropriate. But he doesn't do that. He says to them, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And do you remember what happened the day before that? The day he came into the city riding on a donkey. And the people were crying and shouting, what is it in verse 9? The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna! To the son of David. And did Jesus say this is not appropriate? Of course he didn't. So when Jesus raises with the Pharisees on day three, this issue, this is the third day in which this has become a central issue. The people have been ascribing praise to him as the son of David. The children have been ascribing praise to him as the son of David. And now he takes the Pharisees head on on this very issue and he says, who is the son of David? And what authority does the Christ have? Jesus is not backing off here. Jesus, even if for many of the people around who are listening, this is simply a clever question. An interesting question. For the Pharisees, they know exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I accept this ascription of praise as the son of David. But the son of David, the Christ, is referred to by David as Lord. Who is greater, David or his promised son? For if there is one greater than David amongst you, then that is the authority by which I speak. And the authority by which I do these things. Because that was the very first question. By what authority, said the chief priests and the elders, do you do these things? The answer is given to us here, at this particular point in Matthew's Gospel. As the son of David. The one whom David calls Lord. Verse 46 says, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And the crowd are still there. And then there's the whole of Matthew chapter 23. Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but don't do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them in men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do... It's done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. And they love the place of honor at the banquets and the important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. And the people know that this is true as Jesus is speaking this. And he teaches his disciples, you're not to be like this. This is not what it means to follow me. You're not to be called rabbi. You've only one master and you're all brothers. And don't call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 15. Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. Verse 23. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 25. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees and hypocrites. Verse 27. Woe to you. Verse 29. Woe to you. Verse 33. You snakes. This is the Christ speaking. It is very difficult for us to overestimate the powerful dynamic of what is happening at this particular moment in the temple precincts in Jerusalem at this special Passover time. I don't know whether all of this took half an hour or whether it took most of the morning or most of the afternoon But there's been this steady stream of leaders approaching Jesus in an attempt to challenge his authority. By what authority do you do this? How are you setting yourself up as a leader? An attempt to discredit him in the eyes of the people. And it's all ended in one way or another in failure. The chief priests and elders, the disciples, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees themselves. And then this most amazing public outburst against the hypocrisy of the religion of his own day. What are we to take from this? Two things I want to leave with you this morning. You may or may not have noticed in one of the songs that the girls were singing for us this morning. It has that line uh, about my prophet, priest and king. Um, I don't know whether you noticed them singing that or not. It's a phrase which is very often used of Jesus. That Jesus is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king a very biblical concept. It's a way of thinking about just how great Christ is and what it means to love him, to serve him, and to follow him. That everything we need is bound up in him as prophet, priest, and king. And here this morning, in the temple precincts in Jerusalem, in Matthew's Gospel, in these three or four chapters, I present to you Jesus the prophet and Jesus the king book of hebrews will point out how jesus is our great high priest it'll take a lot of time to do a lot of its time will be taken up in doing that and it's wonderfully helpful but if you were ever confused about some other aspects of this the incidents of this one day in the temple in the this last week of his life give clear signs of jesus as the prophet and the king first of all the prophet chapter 21 verse 11 as Jesus is entering the city. And the people are saying, Who is this? What's the answer that's given? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And what Matthew has done is, Matthew has not only quoted for us what they say, but he has let us, particularly on this third day of the week, he has let us see Jesus act as a prophet. Prophets as far as Jewish people and the Old Testament Scriptures were concerned, were not just tied up with the issue of predicting the future. That was not primarily the prophet's role. The prophet's role was to speak God's word, announce God's judgment to God's people, and call for repentance and proclaim righteousness. That was the prophet's task. And that's exactly what we witness in these events. We get a clue to what is coming in verse 11 of chapter 21 when the people speak in these terms. We see the evidence of it in the way in which Jesus, just like the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Amos and Hosea, confronts the leadership of his own day. Just in the same kind of way in which they spoke about corruption and unrighteousness. So in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus, like a classic Old Testament prophet, speaks in exactly the same terms about hypocrisy, about a lack of integrity, about unrighteousness and unholiness. You see Jesus the prophet standing here in the temple precincts in Jerusalem. And that challenges me. And that song that the girls sang earlier is very helpful in thinking about this because I was working through the words as they were singing it and I believe about Jesus as my saviour and friend. But to speak of Jesus as my prophet, priest and king takes me a stage further. It's a huge challenge. To speak of Jesus as my saviour and my friend is very comforting. It's a great sense of privilege and it's often very appropriate. But he is also prophet. And the hallmark of the prophet is an uncompromising attitude to hypocrisy and unrighteousness. That's the hallmark of the prophet. This Jesus that we see standing in the temple precincts is the Jesus that John sees in his great vision at the beginning of Revelation. The Jesus who in those opening chapters of Revelation 1 to 3 is the Jesus who moves among the churches. And the Jesus who speaks prophetically to the churches and says, Unless you repent where there is sin, I will remove the candlestick. I will close this place down. Yes, Jesus is our friend and our saviour, but he is prophet. Not just the fulfilment of all that the Old Testament prophets had to say, but he is the one who proclaims righteousness and justice and demands holiness and integrity. And if I sing of him in terms of my saviour, my lord and my friend, I must also be prepared to sing of him and think of him as my prophet. I must hear his righteousness preaching. I must hear his holiness preaching. I must hear his call to repentance in my own life. I think it's fair to say that for some of us, certainly for me, there is a tendency to enjoy Matthew chapter 23. There's a, a spit and fire going on in Matthew chapter 23 which is appealing. You know, this is not just gentle Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus sorting the whole thing out. And there's something about it that is at times attractive because I like to be able to name the hypocrites of today. And I read Matthew chapter 23 and I put other names in there. They're not scribes and Pharisees. They're the names of people. They're the names of churches. And they're the names of other Christian leaders. And I hear Jesus sorting them out and going through them like a dose of salts, And I love it. And I completely miss the point. Jesus is not getting at other people because of their status. Because of the positions of power that they hold. He's not getting at them simply because they're Pharisees. He's getting at them because of unrighteousness. And hypocrisy and their abusive power. And Jesus will get at me in exactly the same way if that's how I behave. This is not a message for other people. This is the finest righteousness preaching you will ever hear in Matthew 23. And it applies to me. And I need to listen. Because this is my prophet speaking. And Jesus the King, Jesus will within the next 48 or 72 hours, depending on how this week is measured out from this point, will be hanging on a cross With a notice, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, above his badly beaten and broken body. It's a political act. It's a racial act. It's a sign that will be erected by a pagan Roman to offend the Jewish authorities. It will be there to mock them more than to mock Jesus. Here's your king, Pilate will be saying. You miserable, horrible people. But it is a sign that will be saying more than its author really understands. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in chapter 22 and verse 44, and putting this challenge to them that we looked at earlier, he's quoting from Psalm 110 which they would have known, as Jesus knew, was seen as a messianic psalm, even by the Jews of Jesus' own day. And Jesus uses a phrase from the psalm, but it means that they all understand that it's not just that little phrase he's using, but it's the thrust of the psalm itself. And it says in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 110, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And Jesus is presenting to the Pharisees the challenge that the son of David is greater than David. He is indeed the Christ. He is Lord. He is the one who will crush the rulers of the whole earth. And he stands here in the court of the Gentiles in the temple precincts and he says this. And this is a vision of a king who rules the nations, not just Israel. And Jesus understands that. And he is speaking as king. Not just king of the Jews, but king of the nations. Jesus accepts the praise of the people and the children and in his challenge to the Pharisees stands his ground and claims to be the Lord, the king, who will judge the nations. It says to me that in an age of relativism, when I'm supposed to say that your beliefs are no different to mine, or no better than mine, or no worse than mine, when your truth is good for you and my truth is good for me, it says to me that actually as a Christian, you and I as Christians are called to declare that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are called to declare that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything into his hands. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And in this day in the temple in Jerusalem, very near the end of Jesus' earthly life, we see Jesus take the stand as prophet and king. Here's our party leader. His performance has been scrutinized by his contemporaries and the public. We know where he stands. We know his standards. Let's follow him.